This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Saroja Coelho, and this is the very first episode of Just Asking. You have lots of questions about your own life and this complex world around you. And this show is where we figure things out together. You get to call us live on CBC Radio on Saturday afternoons with questions about a range of things. What's on the news? Your finances, career, health questions. We have the experts right here to answer them. And on our very first show... Kids are vulnerable online to hatred, to uh, violence, to being bullied. There is impending legislation, all sorts of parental controls, and no shortage of scary stories. But you don't have to spiral out alone. Our experts tackled your questions on keeping your kids safe online. And then in our second half hour... Never mind, I'll find someone like you. There are so many love songs about the end of romantic relationships, but how exactly do you go about calling it quits with a friend? This is Just Asking. Welcome to our debut episode. I don't allow my 12-year-old daughter to have her own social media accounts. If they don't know people in person, they shouldn't be connecting with them online. It's really important for us to be proactive, kind of know what our kids are experiencing, what kind of information is being thrown at them, what kind of information they're putting out in the world. It is my job as a parent to do whatever the hell I possibly can to protect my children. Protect the children. That's really what every parent, every guardian wants to do. But when kids are online, how do you do that? It's really hard to know. From cyberbullying to sextortion, exposure to violent content, there are just so many dangers, so many pitfalls, and that can be so scary and overwhelming. This week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that his government is planning to introduce an online harms bill. That could arrive as early as next week. And the main goal here is to protect kids. But how much is about legislation and policy and what can you do at home? Matthew Johnson is joining us today. He's the director of education at Media Smarts. This is a nonprofit that focuses on media literacy and education. And he's going to be with us for the next half hour to answer your questions about how to best protect your children online. If you'd like to call us, we would love that for this debut episode. one 416 8333. That's 1-888-416-8333. You can also text your question to us, 226-758-8924. Matthew, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Saroja. So let's start with what the Liberals have announced. This online harms bill is coming. Um, we don't have a lot of the specifics about the bill itself, but Trudeau has said that it aims to protect minors online. What are you hoping to see included in that bill? Well, there are a few different things. Uh, we have been advocating for several years now for a national digital media literacy strategy uh, that really does take digital media literacy seriously and sets it as a priority uh, on the national level because we know that that's essential to keeping kids safe. The young people in our research also told us repeatedly that they do want to uh, platforms to make it more easy to respond to the things that they see online that upset them, whether that's hate or cyberbullying or inappropriate content. They want more tools. They want the, pr the process for doing that to be easier. Um, and that's a design feature that could be part of regulations. And of course, it's important that whatever the regulations and the legislation say, um, that there be vigorous enforcement behind them. Because of course, Canada already has some of the strongest laws in the world dealing with things like online hate. But so often, enforcement is uh, the key issue. It's the issue where things fall down. Why don't we follow that for a second? As you're casting an eye around the world, what examples do you have of countries that you think have successfully implemented legislation that's aimed at protecting kids online? Well, I think that Australia is probably the world leader here, certainly among English-speaking countries. Um, and I think it is because they've taken an approach 
uh, where education is, and research are tied in to protection uh, and regulation, uh, where the e-safety commissioner in Australia has, of course, a responsibility, a regulatory responsibility focused on young people's safety, but also has a responsibility to conduct or sponsor research so that they understand what the issues really are and to educate young people and parents, and to provide support for teachers as well. Well, really interesting. A lot of what you're talking about there is how much of a healthy conversation we need, an open conversation we need about what people are seeing online and able to identify and, and report it. I'm sure that's going to come up over the course of this half hour. Uh, as you know, we are going to open our phone lines and chat with folks across the country about this very issue. We have a question about cyberbullying up first. This is from a listener who reached us before the show. Just have a listen. Hi, my name is Arshila Rajani and I'm from Calgary. I am a mother of two kids aged 11 and 8. And my question would be related to cyberbullying. How do I explain my kids what is cyberbullying and the risks associated with it? Well, thanks so much, Arshila, for sending that question in. Matthew, how would you answer her? So in a lot of ways, uh, cyberbullying is similar to traditional bullying. And a lot of the approaches that we take to dealing with with traditional bullying apply. But we do need, first of all, to make sure that young people understand that it's very easy to miss signals when we're talking to people online. Because a lot of the things that normally trigger empathy in us, things like tone of voice, things like body language and facial expression, they're not there. So we may not realize when we've hurt someone. And they may seem like they're overreacting to us because we don't know that something we said or did hurt them. And so we may get upset by their response. So it's really important uh, to teach kids to be actively empathetic when they're online, um, to slow down when something makes you upset. Take a beat. Don't respond right away. Get up, have a snack, Go outside, but take a little break. Give yourself time to calm down before you respond. And when possible, work it out face-to-face -face rather than online so that you have those empathy cues. The other really important thing is to empower young people to be positive witnesses. When they witness cyberbullying, tell them there's always something they can do to help. Sometimes kids don't want to speak out publicly, and sometimes that's for very good reasons. They're worried that they'll become a target or they'll make things worse for the target. But you can always reach out to the person who's being targeted by cyberbullying and tell them privately that you think what's happening isn't okay. And our research has shown that that's not only the safest, but in many cases, the most effective way of responding when you witness cyberbullying. Thank you so much for that, Matthew. I'm going to uh, welcome Carol Todd from Coquitlam, BC, uh, who is on the line. She is the mother of Amanda Todd, who is a 15-year-old girl who died by suicide in 2012. And this happened to Amanda when she was cyberbullied, after she was cyberbullied and sexually extorted online. Carol has ever since then being an advocate for kids' safety on the internet, and she joins us now. Carol, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't we begin with the signs that you would encourage other parents to look for when it comes to that level of, of cyberbullying? Well, I think that if, you know, someone's child is being cyberbullied, you have to look for for the, the, the signs, the changes of behavior in your child, whether they're, you know, all of a sudden they're sleeping a lot or they're not sleeping enough, they're irritable, um, their food intake has changed, all those signals. And then, and then one of the things that I always say is, you know, we need to have these trusted conversations with our kids and know that they can come to you at any time to, to have a, a, a chat, whether it's, you know, something that's happening online or something that's happening face-to-face -face in real life. Um, and then to teach our kids about the red flags, the red flags of cyberbullying, the red flags of exploitation, sextortion, um, so that they understand and know that if something is directed at them and it makes them feel uncomfortable, they should, you know, depending on the ages, of course, they should be coming to their trusted adults to have a conversation. And the trusted adults aren't always parents. They could be, you know, the, the teachers, the counselors, um, uh, the the parents of a friend, 
someone that they trust. And, and so those are basically the things that I talk about with parents when I have conversations with them. I can imagine that, that the red flags of cyberbullying and sextortion are, are many, but what are some of the key ones that you would tell parents and, and guardians to watch out for? Well, the, the red flags of cyberbullying, you know, it's, it's online hate, um, and it's the words that are hurtful. And as Matthew said, some of the words can be misconstrued because um, texting online is far different than um, saying it face-to-face. And so, you know, the, the ones that demean someone's body image, the ones that demean someone's personality, someone that threaten you, um, those are all... All word, signal words that um, something's happening on, on the other side. And, and like Matthew said, do not respond right away. You need to step back and um, pro- let your brain process it. Um, I know that lots of kids, as with Amanda's case, right, it became retaliation online. So someone says something and then um, my daughter or her friends would say something back and, and then it becomes that gang mentality and it just escalates. It gets worse and worse. And so that's why sometimes in the school system, you can't always solve what's happening online by yourself. You need to have um, an adult mediator in there if it works. And, and it all depends on the age of the child. It, it totally changes. It shifts, right? And then with exploitation, sextortion, there's a whole bunch of red flags. And, and you know that there's been sextortion stories where, um, unfortunately, a young person has Died by suicide, which which hurts me to the core. Right, um, we have to talk to our kids about uh, what's happening online, who they're who they're acknowledging online, who they're talking to, what the other person is asking for. Are they asking for images? Are they asking for personal information? Um, even something innocuous as you know. W- what what does your soccer jersey look like and where are you playing your next game um, from someone you don't really know in real life at the other end? Those are those are red flags, right? And then or they're offering you things. And so um, there's there's lots of good re- media smarts and you know um, mm-hmm. child, Center for Child Protection and the RCMP. If you go and you type in exploitation red flags or cyberbullying red flags, it will come up with um, the red flags that, that you should be aware of to have conversations with your kids. You can even use AI to to go and say, what are the red flags and what should I talk to my kids about, right? And it'll come up with them. And so I am feeling now as an educator, and so um, I work in the Coquitlam School District with um teachers and parents and kids. And we talk about the red flags all the time. Carol, thank you so much for coming here today and talking a little bit about Amanda's story, but also about all the things that we can learn from from what happened to her. Uh, I saw a wonderful photograph of the two of you together, and I, I'm really touched that you would you would take the time for us uh, after after everything that you've been through. Thank you. You're welcome. I've been speaking to Carol Todd. She is the mother of Amanda Todd. Uh, I'm also speaking right now with Matthew Johnson. He's here to answer your questions about how to keep kids safe online. He's the director of education at Media Smarts, which is a nonprofit focusing on media literacy. We got another voice note from a parent in Calgary. This is what he asked. Hi, my name is Nudan Ismail. My question is, what age is appropriate for kids to be on social media? And which apps do you think are not safe right now for kids to be on the internet? So if you can share some more details, I would appreciate your answer. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for calling in, Nuruddin. I'm going to pass your question over to Matthew. As you're listening to that, are there apps that are coming to mind? You know, there really isn't any evidence that... um any apps are necessarily safer or more dangerous than others, um, with a few exceptions. So apps that connect people to directly to strangers and apps that allow you to be fully anonymous. 
are both more dangerous. Uh, but they don't tend to remain popular for long, and even those kids that use them don't tend to use them for very long, because most young people are primarily interested in using social media to connect with family or friends. And so connecting with strangers, connecting anonymously, these don't appeal for very long um, but beyond that, you know, there are apps that do uh, have different policies. So certainly um, X, which was formerly Twitter, has much looser policies. It allows much more in terms of explicit content. Um, TikTok and YouTube are much more strict about not allowing explicit content. So definitely, you do want to take a quick look at, ideally, the parent center. Almost all of these apps have a safety center or a parent center. So take a look at those and see what their rules are around explicit content, and also things like reporting cyberbullying or reporting any issues that arise. This is, it's really quite amazing to listen to you because what we're talking about is a, is a generation of people who are parenting, raising and teaching kids who were not raised in the same digital environment. What you're describing is such exceptional savvy that people have to have about kids' engagement in, uh, online when it might outstrip their own personal experience. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because it sounds like there's just a lot to navigate. I'm going to welcome our live caller, Tom Cull, um, who is from London, Ontario, and has some questions about sports gambling ads. Tom, hi. Hi. Good hi. Afternoon. It's so nice of you to call into this very first edition of the show. What's your question for Matthew? Yeah, I was just interested in, Matthew, in your, in your thoughts, your perspective about the dangers of online gambling, uh, specifically sports gambling, because it's just so prevalent uh, now um, uh, and um, targeted. Uh, yeah, so I'm wondering you know, your perspective about p potential dangers of uh, younger people getting involved in online uh, gambling, uh, if you're seeing anything reflected in the literature or the research on that. Yeah, absolutely. That is a real worry. Um, the, the research that we have is that only about a third of parents have ever discussed uh, gambling with their kids. Um, and it is important to talk about it because uh, research has also found that family members' views about gambling are a major influence on how likely youth are to gamble. So certainly you do want to avoid having your kids exposed to uh, gambling ads if you can. Um, so limiting online ads, for instance, um, can be a way of doing that. But sometimes there is no way of doing that, particularly if you enjoy watching sports. Um, so making sure that you are talking to them about it, making sure that you are talking to them about uh, the risks involved of gambling, that they understand the actual odds, they understand the way that gambling is always set up to uh, to pay the company in the end, that the, the house always wins over time. And it's also important to talk to kids about the gambling-like features of a lot of online games, because there is evidence that a lot of kids, that is how they get uh, started when they get involved in gambling. Certainly sports gambling ads are one way, um, but things like loot boxes and other gambling-like features in online games often are under parents' radar. Uh, and so it's important for kids to understand. It's one of the reasons why it's really good to have a rule in your home uh, about online purchases, that anytime they're going to spend any money online, they discuss it with you first. Thank you so much for that, Matthew. Um, Alex, I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Uh, sorry, um, I'm sorry, I'm speaking to Tom. Tom, thank you so much for your for your call. Thank you. We are going to turn now to Alex. Alex Kempfer is a parent in the greater Toronto area, and she sent us a voice note with her question just before the show. Our 10-year-old recently came home from school with a Chromebook, and we would like to know what parental controls we can install to keep her safe when she's on YouTube or using Google. We would also like to know what other things we should consider to help keep her safe when she is online. So, Matthew, how can Alex best protect her child? There she's using school-issued technology, and clearly this is technology, a device that she'll be using outside of her parents' supervision because she's at school. Mm -hmm. So if this was... a provided by a school, then probably there are already some uh, 
settings that have been set to be more protective, but you do want to double check this. So first of all, Google does have a safe search setting. It's a good idea generally uh, to use that with kids um, and to show kids how to set it so they, they can make sure that, to set it themselves. Um, similarly, YouTube does have a restricted mode that limits what kind of content they can see. Um, you can also make sure that autoplay is turned off on YouTube so that the, the next video doesn't automatically play when you're at the end of it. Um, and you can also find, download ad blocking uh, plugins for Chrome so that uh, they aren't seeing ads that uh, are inappropriate. They aren't seeing particularly pop-up ads because we know that that's one of the ways, the most common ways that young people are unintentionally exposed to explicit content. Um, and you can also install um, apps like DuckDuckGo uh, that limit data collection, um, because that's another important way of helping to keep kids safe. Matthew, as we're going along, I've been making a list of some of the key words here and realizing that this a lot of this is going to be brand new for folks listening. So if you're not 100% familiar with what autoplay is on, on YouTube or how to fiddle with settings or watch out for red flags or ad blocking, like that's got to be a big wave of information for a lot of folks. Is there somewhere online that just kind of simply explains some of this stuff for parents and guardians? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot of resources for parents um, and guardians at our website, mediasmarts.ca. Uh, all of the resources are also available in French at habilomedia.ca. And one of the places that I would recommend parents start is uh, a tip sheet we have called co-viewing with your kids. Because it this seems will be a lot less daunting when you do it a little bit at a time. Uh, it seems daunting when you think about it, doing it all at once. But if you do it a little bit at a time, if you look for opportunities, um, so when your kids are using YouTube, that's the opportunity to get them to show you what they like about it and explore it together and explore the settings together and look at how can we control our experience. When your child maybe wants to use a new social network or starts watching a new TV show or a new video or starts playing a new video game, again, use their enthusiasm um, as an opportunity to go through the parent settings together, to go through the safety center together, to think about how can I keep myself safe? And ideally, how can we make this an experience that we share? And oh, it's important great. for parents to know young people think that their parents are more tech savvy than they are. So we shouldn't assume that our kids are technical whizzes. Even into the teen years, they tend to think that their parents know more about technology than they do. So that, that keeping the communication going is a theme that I'm hearing over and over again. Let's, let's imagine that a parent or guardian suspects that something really is wrong, has seen one of those red flags that we're talking about today. For example, maybe they're afraid that the child in their life is talking to someone who isn't safe online. How do they go about monitoring that? Well, I'm not sure it is a good idea to monitor it. Um, our, our evidence, our research, and research done elsewhere has generally found that, that surveillance of kids is not a good way of keeping them safe, and in some ways it can backfire. Um, one of those reasons is because it's telling kids that you don't trust them, and that means that they're not going to come to you when they do have a problem. They're going to try to hide it, and that's the most important thing, is that they feel comfortable coming to you when you have a they have a problem, and so you need that baseline of trust. The other thing is that um, you never, once you're surveilling kids, you're always wondering whether or not you want to give up the fact that you're surveilling them. And so you never know, is this a time when I should reveal that I'm surveilling them? Is this serious enough to act or should I maintain the, the surveillance? So what I would say is, first of all, the thing to do in that case is to talk to them. And ideally, you've already had a conversation ongoing about their media lives. But if not, it's never too late to start. Talk to them about it. What's going on? Um, if you feel you need to surveil them, do it openly. If they have done something that shows that they need to be directly supervised, tell them that you're doing it and tell them why and tell them the circumstances under which they can regain your trust 
and their independence. Thank you so much for that, Matthew. I've only got about a minute and a half left. I want to ask you one last question. There is a Senate bill requiring Canadians um, to verify their age to watch pornography that's going to be studied in the House of Commons. There's been a huge debate about that, particularly this week. Research is showing that kids are starting to discover pornography at around the ages of somewhere between 9 and 14. That's so young. And the images are becoming increasingly violent. But do you think that the bill is a good solution? I can't say that it won't be. Um, Certainly, I would never say that that there isn't any value to appropriate legislation or regulation. But we do know that young Canadians are much more likely to encounter pornography without looking for it. And particularly, that's when they see it at younger ages. Those that are seeking it out uh, on purpose tend to first see it at a slightly older age. Those who see it accidentally tend to see it younger. So um, things that are going to limit that accidental exposure, I think, can be really valuable. Um, whether that comes in the form of regulation or legislation, um, of course, we always have to consider the potential drawbacks, the, the, the unintended consequences of legislation and regulation. But certainly, if it's going to limit that unintentional exposure, that can be a really valuable complement to educating kids, to talking to them, um, making sure that they have already gotten good information about healthy sexuality and relationships so there isn't a void to be filled by pornography. Matthew, thank you so much for all of your time today. Well, thank you for having me. Matthew Johnson is the Director of Education at Media Smarts, and we reached him in Ottawa. If you want to call us with questions when we are live on CBC Radio on Saturday afternoons, the number to call is 1-888-416-8333. That's 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us your questions. The number for texts is 226 758 8924. And if you want to submit your questions online, go to cbc.ca slash myquestion. I'm Saroja Coelho. Breaking up with a best friend is harder than breaking up with any man. You know those friends where you kind of just like drift away from them? I've kind of had to come to a humbling realization that people flow in and out of your life as you change and evolve and grow. There's a million pieces of media that tell us how to get over a romantic ending. There's movies, TVs, books. Where is that for the ends of friendships? Because women's friendships are the emotional foundation of our lives. Oh my goodness, that's so painful to listen to. Romantic relationships, when they end, we really know the drill, right? We grab a box of tissues, we break out the tub of ice cream, we call all of our friends. As a culture, we really recognize an intimate relationship falling apart as this big, big, heavy moment. But there isn't the same kind of roadmap available when you call it quits with a friend. How on earth do you even do that? And how do you know when it's even the right time? Beverly Fair has thought a lot about this. She's a professor of social psychology at the University of Winnipeg. Her research focuses on close relationships, and she's going to be with us for this next half hour to answer your questions about friendship breakups. If you would like to call us with a question, 1-888-416-8333. Again, that's 1-888-416-8333. Beverly, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, and congratulations on launching the show. It's very exciting. Well, it's nice of you I'm to be a, with us for the first day. Yes, that's great. I'm a big fan of cross-country checkup, and I've often thought the Ask Me Anything portion was too short, so I'm just delighted that there's a full hour show on just asking. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, thank it's you a big so day. much. Yes. Well, if we go to the very first question, top of mind is when on earth do we know that it's time to end a friendship? It's hard to know exactly when to end a friendship, but there are a few signs to look for. One is 
are you doing more and more of the giving in the relationship and not getting as much back? So in any friendship, there will be times when we are contributing more than our friend. Perhaps our friend is going through a breakup, for example, and so we're spending a lot of time supporting that person. Maybe they're grieving a law, another kind of loss. And so there are going to, there is always going to be unevenness in any relationship. But if things are at a point where you are the one who's always providing support, you're the one who's always paying for things, and it's starting to feel to you like this is a very inequitable relationship, there's not a balance here, that might be time to take a close look at that friendship. Well, let's say you've done that really close look. And as you look at the bill, you're noticing that emotionally this is not really working out, uh, that, that this isn't a friendship that is is serving you and it's not one in which you're feeling good about, about what's happening in your life. You've grown apart or the friendship is even toxic. So let's say we've established that, that the, the mm-hmm. friendship is one that we want to bring to an end. How do you go about breaking up with a friend? Um, as one of the early quotations suggested, we don't really have a script for that. What we know people tend to do when they're ending a friendship is to very passively let it wither away. And I heard um, someone else at the intro to your show also comment on that. So people tend to avoid having direct conversations about breakups the way typically happens in romantic relationships. Um, And the tricky thing about that is that your friend may not realize that they are being dumped because you just start not responding to texts as much, not um, sending as many emails, and then eventually the relationship will uh, fade out. Uh, Another approach would be to directly have a breakup conversation, and that tends to be very rare in friendships. It's most likely to happen when there's been a cataclysmic event, like a huge betrayal of trust. In that situation, we might actually sit down with a friend and say, I just can't be friends with you anymore. But the main tendency is just to be very passive and slowly let the friendship die. Those are so difficult to imagine. It's awful to be on the receiving end of that as well, as I'm sure we're going to get into. I want to give you a a question from Kimberly from Vancouver who sent in this text message. What if you've ended a friendship 10 years ago and you'd really love to reconnect? How do you reach out and what do you say? That's a really good question. And one of the um, pieces of advice I would give to anyone who's contemplating ending a friendship is to uh, be as nice as you possibly can, because that can open the door to reviving the relationship down the road. So even if you've had a very heated argument and you're really upset, um, if you can manage to end the friendship in a civil way, that does leave the door open for the possibility of reuniting down the road. And I think if that's someone's desire, I would suggest openly uh, contacting the person and saying, I know that this friendship has waned over the years, but I've been thinking about our good memories and the good times we had together. And I'm wondering if you would consider reconnecting. I want to uh, take you to uh, Abby Chase. Abby Chase is someone who called us earlier with a question. Abby was on the receiving end of a friendship breakup. So we've been really talking about the folks who were ready to end the relationship. But what about the folks who actually inherit that? She was in San Diego, California when we reached her. Here's her situation. I had two very close friends. Um, We were kind of in like a trio. It worked out for a while. Uh, We stayed friends for most of it. But near the end of that, we had a big falling out that never really got resolved. So it was one of those things where she called it quits and I never really understood why until months later. So my biggest question on that front would just be, I guess, how to grieve that sort of friendship and how to move on. Because I feel like friendship breakups really affect you when you expect the person to be a part of your life for a long time. Beverly, how would you answer Abby's question? Abby is making a really good point that we do grieve the loss of romantic relationships. We grieve other kinds of losses. When it comes to friendships, this kind of friendship, this kind of relationship has often been described as the neglected relationship 
pardon me, I think we've underestimated the importance of friendships in people's lives. So when a friendship ends, unlike when another kind of relationship ends, probably your friends aren't all rushing to support you in the same way that they would if you'd gone through a romantic breakup. Uh, your family may not even know that this friendship has ended, and so it can be very lonely to be grieving the loss of a friendship. And my suggestion to Abby would be to call on a few close others and um, explain the grief and share the grief. And I'm sure other people can relate to that grief, even though they themselves may not have had courage to look for support. But this is a situation where I think we have to really actively seek out support and find people who are willing to walk with us through the grieving process in a way that is not just automatically available uh, the way it is if a romantic relationship ends. A lot of what you're saying, Beverly, sounds like elevating the way that we grieve and acknowledge the end of these important relationships. And that's something that was uh, really important to Glenn Sung when he reached out to us. He had a question about the differences between romantic breakups and friend breakups. So listen to this. Hey, my name is Glenn from Toronto. My question for today is, um, from a neurological point of view, do we experience the same type of pains and emotions through a friendship breakup um, compared to a regular breakup? Glenn, that's such a great question. Beverly, what do we know about how we are psychologically affected uh, by the end of a friendship versus a romantic relationship? Last question had to do with uh, neurology and a part of friendship being an understudied relationship is that we don't know what's going on neurologically when a friendship breaks up. But certainly psychologically and emotionally, we know that there is intense pain and grief that can accompany the breakup of a friendship. And sometimes it's difficult to even enter the grieving process because of the passive way in which friendships end. We might not even realize for a while that this friendship actually has ended. So it can be difficult to grieve an event when you're not even sure if it's happened. Uh, but as you're saying that, when we do become aware that this is no longer a friendship to legitimize the grieving, I think that is really important. We're talking a lot about the the pain that can be caused by that slow withering away in which one party doesn't have enough of the enough of the answers, enough of the enough information about what's happened to their friendship if they were the one who was who was left. Uh, I'm going to connect you with Milena Joya, who joins us with a question. Hi, Milena. Hi. So you're interested in exactly this piece, the closure part. What do you want to ask yeah. Beverly? Hi, well, thanks so much for this topic. Um, well, um, so uh, with um, my former best friend, um, we we got into a little bit of a heated um, argument and went a sort of a little back and forth with uh, email exchanges. And then uh, they no longer responded after after a while and um, then I saw them in person a few times and they completely ignored me um, and I tried to reach out and um, they clearly don't want to <laughs> don't want to speak to me um, so that's something that uh, it, it, this happened six months ago <laughs> so I've, I've, I've had time to sort of deal with it but but it's still really hard on my on my heart and um we we move through the same circles we have similar friends and do similar activities and so i guess i would just like some guidance on how to navigate this and and what to do when i when i see them um i don't want to pretend like it's like we don't know each other we knew each other for so long and it's just really hard Melena, thank you so much for telling us that story. Beverly, how would you respond to that, that need to navigate, especially in a shared space? And it sounds like it's been very painful for Melena. Yes, Melena is bringing up a really tricky issue because most of our friends also are friends with our other friends. So there's a lot of mutuality in friendships. And so if you end a friendship, chances are that you still will be in the vicinity of that person as Melena is describing. And as she says, you don't want to just pretend you don't know the person. Um, but I 
think that all some one can do in that situation is to um, be polite and civil and then really just try to not have to interact with that person uh, when you're in a group to perhaps um, focus your attention elsewhere because our social lives do tend to be so intertwined and that's one reason I was suggesting earlier that to be as as polite and nice about a friendship breakup as possible because chances are you will run into that person again and you want those interactions to go as smoothly as they possibly can but it's a really difficult social situation to navigate for sure. Melena is how's that landing with you? You're, the, the closure piece sounds like it's the real struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like I, I hear you and I hear you about being nice and and civil about it. And I mean, I'm there now. I wasn't there. I wasn't there before. Um, But I guess a part of me, though, feels, um, I guess, a a kid part in me, a a part of my inner child feels like if I just go about it pretending like nothing happened, it's like, it really does a disservice to me, to to them, to our to our friendship. We had such a beautiful friendship, and pretending like it didn't exist just feels so hurtful. Beverly, how would you respond to that? I totally understand how that feels very hurtful, and I also agree with Melena that pretending is going to be very unsatisfying as well and that's why I think to the extent that at least for now Melena if you're able to avoid social situations where you're likely to run into this person until you can get to a point where you could have a civil conversation um maybe at some point you could reach the place where you can reminisce about some of the good memories you've had but that would normally take quite a long time to get to that point. So for now, probably best just to try to avoid these situations, uh, contact situations as much as you can, because they are going to be hurtful for you. Beverly, thank you mm-hmm. for that. Oh, Melena, I really feel you. I just have to, to tell you, you know, I am also a creature of closure and uh, and I, I have a really strong sense of justice. And when you don't get closure, you're just left with all the unfinished, unsaid stuff. And I just imagine you said it's been six months, but I imagine you've worked on a lot in your head and your heart over these six months. I really wish you luck. Thank you for, for hanging out with us Aww. today. Thank you so much. Thanks for the topic and thanks for answering my question. Sure thing. I'm here with Beverly Fair, who is a professor of social psychology at the University of Winnipeg. Her research focuses on close relationships. And as we are hearing, one of those big relationships that we deal with in life falling apart is our friendships. I'm going to go to Scott DeWeber next, who is in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, Hi, Scott. Hello, how are you? Oh, so well. And thank you for, for joining us for this first edition of the show. As we're chatting with Beverly, what's the question that's hanging on your heart? Yeah, thank you for taking my call. It's really exciting. Great new show. Uh, my question is this. If you have a really long-term friendship, say 30 years, and um, you've had conflict, um, and you recognize in yourself that you have things to work on that you are, um, but your friend, there's a lack of contrition or acknowledgement of their responsibility around their own challenges, um, how do you try to move forward with that beyond the obvious, uh, sort of uh, burning that bridge? And the metaphor I said to my friend is, you know, because reflexively they've said they might want to burn the bridge. I said, my, it's a suspension bridge that has a, a full span in the middle. My bridge will always be intact to rebuild back to. So kind of how do you deal with that situation? Wow, Beverly, that's a complicated one. What do you think? Uh, Scott, I really like your image of the uh, suspension bridge. Um, Unfortunately, there's only so much control that we can have over these situations. Uh, We can't force someone to talk about issues that they don't want to talk about. So all that can be done is extending that open invitation. Often um, people are really concerned about bringing up an issue that's troubling because they're worried that their friend is going to react negatively. So in general, people shy away from discussing difficult issues with their friends. And um, it sounds as though your friend is following the typical pattern of not wanting to open up about some issues that 
in your mind need to be addressed for the friendship to move forward. And I think in those cases, all you can do is yeah, keep the door open um, and hope that the person will get to the point where they are willing to confront some of the issues that you've been bringing up. Oh, Scott, that's going right. to take uh, right. a lot of strength to do. No, it's hard to keep a door open. Um, when yeah, somebody... I just have one more really quick suggestion. Of course. Is that rather than having a live conversation about it in which either party can get heated and then the amygdala goes offline is to trade voice recordings and plan what you're saying rather than writing it out in a long email, which can often be responded to and dissected. Uh, I, I find we've done this before when my friend and I have had conflict, we trade longer voice messages where we just talk about how we're feeling. And I think that's possibly one way out of this or it could be helpful. So, Oh, Beverly, that's interesting. What do you think about that kind of a digital deep breath? I, it's a, a really interesting idea because... Um, it sounds as though a lot of thought is going into these recordings um, because what can often happen if people are upset or there's a conflict issue is that they fire off an email or a text and um, then later it makes the situation even worse if you can't retract it. But what um, Scott is suggesting sounds like it's a very thoughtful, deliberate kind of message and by Sending it in that way, the other person doesn't have to face it or face you face to face. Um, so that that sounds like a very good suggestion to me. Um, I have not heard of anyone who's tried that, so this is really interesting. Scott, thanks so much Thank for you. calling in. Thank you so much for taking my call. Have a great day. We're going to go next to Mark Williams in Brantford, Ontario, who has had a best friend for 30 years. And then what happened? Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thank you. What's your question for Beverly? Well, I, my situation was I was a party of three. My best friend went out with a family member for almost 25 years. They broke up. We were really good friends. We used to hunt together, stuff like that. And then I supported him emotionally when he had his problems. Now, I, lost, I had two years ago, I lost my uncle. And I lost my mom consecutively within three months. And the grief that I was feeling, I needed a best friend. And he wasn't there. And I was so bloody hurt that I went on social media and I attacked him the best way I knew how, because I was very mad. I mean, 30 years. And it hurt me. I was all only compounded by the fact I was dealing with the death of my uncle, the death of my mom within three months of each other. And uh, it's hard to say goodbye to a friend. I miss him. And I'm sorry for what I said on social media, but I was hurt. Wow. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for telling us that story. Beverly, what are you hearing in that, and how would you help Mark out? Mark, those are huge losses, losses of family members within such a short period of time. And those are exactly the times when we want to know that our best friend is there for us. And so it is truly heartbreaking when you are needing that support and it's not available to you. And that is one of the main reasons that friendships will end is that you have an experience where you were expecting your friend to be there for you and your friend wasn't. And in a case like yours, where it's been a 30-year friendship, that is especially painful. So it's not all, at all surprising that you lashed out on social media. Uh, you're saying now that you miss... Yes. I didn't want to leash out, but my uh, anger took the better of me and mm -hmm. I couldn't before I knew it, it was written down that, and I had sent it, and I got back a well, I got back a bad email message too. And I understand that we're both we're both human. We're both long distance truck drivers, sort of thing at one time. And I really enjoyed his company, and I really, really miss him. And the hardest part for me is that when I let I, don't, I have a hard time letting people into my inner circle, mm -hmm. and when I do let my inner circle in. It uh, it hurts when I get uh, thwarted. You know what I mean? Yes, I I completely get that. There's a real vulnerability that comes with letting someone into our our inner circle, and we trust that person, and so then it's extremely painful when that trust is betrayed in some way, such as the person not being there for us. Um, one of the common patterns in friendship, um, especially with men, is 
feeling that they don't know how to support a friend who is grieving. And so often people's intentions might be good, but they feel they just don't have the tools to know how to go about being supportive. Um, I I would have been happy with this. Hey, bro, how how are you doing? A message like that, and then I would have been fine. But totally being ignored when you're like two people die in your family, especially your mom. And then, uh, I have to deal with a third death because this friendship is no longer. And uh, I guess it's just, the best thing I find is that on family day, we adopted a little puppy and that's been taking up a lot of my emotional, she's like my emotional support. So I think with that, I should be okay. And my talking to my wife, I mean, open communication with your loved one, like your wife is paramount. I think when you go through something like this. Mark, I'm so grateful that you called in with your story, and I really, I really wish you luck as you go forward with it. I hope that Beverly's answers were helpful, and, and thanks a lot. Well, I really enjoy your show. You guys are the best, and I listen to your program often. It's the first time I have the, the nerve to uh, call in, because that's a topic I really didn't want to discuss or anything, but I was compelled to with all these stories I've been hearing. You guys are the best. And keep on trucking and keep on doing what you guys do because you you do help out a lot of people. Thank you so much, Mark. That was Mark Williams from Brantford, Ontario. And I've been chatting with Beverly Fair, who is a professor of social psychology at the University of Winnipeg. Beverly, I'm so grateful for everything you've offered us on, on closure and taking care of ourselves and taking care of other people. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure and um, a huge thank you to the people who shared their stories. These are really tough stories to share and it takes a lot of courage to do that. I can only echo Beverly's gratitude there. Thank you to everybody who called in. We had more calls than we could have ever expected. This was Just Asking, our very, very, very first show. In a future episode, we're going to be talking about plastic surgeons and what they call the Zoom Boom in Botox and fillers. Many of us who are looking all day long at video calls and seeing our own faces and having lots of thoughts, including I need to change that. So if you've had any thoughts or questions for a cosmetic dermatologist, you can send us a WhatsApp voice note. The number is 226-758-8924. Tell us your name, your question. Again, that's 226-758-8924. Just Asking was produced by Rachel DeGasparis and Ruxar Ali. Our studio director is Abby Plenner. Marco Luciano is our technical producer. Sunisha Yolich is our digital producer. We've also had screeners working on this show. Kiara Greco, Chuck Mulgat, and Alexa DiFrancesco. Our senior producer is Yamri Tosputadesa. And wow, I've enjoyed this day so much with you. Thank you. This has been Just Asking. I'm Saroja Coelho. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.